Welcome to the Torah Guide, a podcast where we explore how the Hebrew Bible is all about Jesus and meditate on what it has to say to us. I'm your host, Aaron Dranoff. Almost the entire Hebrew Bible is about the Jewish people, Israel. So why does the Torah begin before they exist? Last week, we talked about how the Hebrew Bible begins with a narrative that continues from Genesis through 2 Kings. So the Torah and half of the prophets are all one continuous narrative. After 2 Kings, the remaining books are diverse literary works such as poetry, proverbs, and more narrative, that are all rooted in the story that goes from Genesis through 2 Kings. So understanding the Hebrew Bible means understanding that overarching story that all the individual scrolls are rooted in. And of course, how we understand the first 11 chapters of the Bible, the chapters before there were any Jewish people, will shape our understanding of the Bible as a whole. So to illustrate this point, Rashi, who is probably the most influential and respected Jewish commentator, started his biblical commentary like this. The Torah, which is the law book of Israel, should have commenced with the verse Exodus 12:2. This month shall be unto you the first of the months, which is the first commandment given to Israel. What is the reason then that it commences with the account of the creation? In rabbinic Judaism, the primary purpose of the Torah is the law within the Torah. So to Rashi, the Torah is Israel's law book. So the fact that it begins with a story that continues for an entire book and even into the second book before laws start being given is something that needs serious explaining, which is why Rashi started his biblical commentary by raising that problem. To Rashi, the Torah is simply Israel's law code. So the reason it begins before the people of Israel is to show the world why Israel has the right to that land. Rashi continued, All the earth belongs to the Holy One. Blessed be He. He created it and He gave it to whom He pleased. So Rashi came to the Torah with the paradigm or perspective already in mind that he was looking at Israel's law code. So then as he started reading and he didn't see any laws, for 62 chapters, he made sense of it as best he could. And the reasoning he came to was that it must be Israel's deed to the Holy Land. So for Rashi, the reason that the Torah begins with a story that continues through the first book into the second book before any laws are given, it must be because this is to show the rest of the nations that Israel, the people of Israel, have the right to the land of Israel because it all belongs to God who gave it to them. So let's take a look at the introduction to the Torah, Genesis 1 through 11, to see how the story presents itself. We'll see if it presents itself as the justification for Israel's possession of the land, or as maybe a theology book that's meant to teach us about creation, or if it's trying to send us another message altogether. While the story does show that God is the creator who can do what he pleases with his land, and he does give Israel that land, and it does hold theological truths about creation— I want to show you that the author had something much deeper and more meaningful to communicate. At the opening of the story in Genesis 1, God creates the cosmos 
and sees that it's good. The climax of this creation was his images, humanity. God empowered his images to rule over creation on his behalf by trusting his instruction. He blessed them and elevated them to rulers, but he told them not to eat from the tree of knowing good and bad, which would kill them. But instead of trusting God to see what's good and not good, as the story already established in Genesis 1 and 2 was God's role, seeing good and what's not good, now the woman sees what's good for herself and listens to a serpent instead of God. The serpent deceived the woman into thinking God was holding out on her. He said that if they ate from the tree, they would be like God. Now the tragedy is that they were already like God. They were made in the image and likeness of God. When the woman and her husband did this, instead of elevating themselves like they thought they were doing, they really diminished themselves. They were deceived into thinking they weren't enough, that they weren't like God. So they tried to elevate themselves as if God was holding out on them. This scene is when the narrative arc really began. Up until they saw that the tree was good and listened to the serpent, the story was setting the stage, teaching us what peace looks like and introducing key figures. When humans took the fruit, it fractured that good world and it plummets us into the conflict that the rest of the story is about. Then the next few chapters continue cyclically to show just how far this problem reaches and what God plans on doing about it. So right after Adam and Eve listened to the serpent, God promised that relief would come from one of Eve's, the woman's, future descendants, someone who would crush the serpent. Then one of her children, Cain, is confronted by sin just like his parents were. Then when that happens, God gives Cain some instructions. He tells Cain, Sin is lurking at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So God describes sin to Cain as an animal-like being that he was supposed to rule over. Adam and Eve were supposed to rule over creation, and specifically they were supposed to rule over the land crawlers. Genesis 1.26 draws specific attention to the land crawlers when God is creating them to rule. Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make ma mankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. But Adam and Eve didn't rule over the land crawler. They listened to it. And then their son is tempted by sin, and God describes it as an animal-like predator. So God instructs Cain, too, to rule over it. But in the very next sentence, Cain lets sin rule over him, and he kills his brother. Then, as humanity spreads on the earth, instead of spreading blessing, they spread evil. In chapter 6, verse 1, we learn that mankind is spreading out on the land just like God wanted them to do earlier. Remember, he told them to be fruitful and multiply. But then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. When mankind spread on the earth, they weren't spreading blessing. They were spreading wickedness. So just like with Adam and Eve and with Cain, God takes sin seriously. So he raises up another human, another Adam, Adam in Hebrew just means human. So God raises up another Adam, Adam, 
and resets creation with a flood. But after the flood, the evil problem is still polluting creation. How is that possible? Well, because humanity is still around. God preserved humanity through Noah and his family. So after the flood, God said, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Even though human evil is still the reality after the flood, God is still determined to preserve humanity. The reason he gave for not destroying humanity is the same reason he gave earlier for destroying humanity. Why is that? Because the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's why God's not going to destroy the earth. It's not going to work. Human, humankind is where the evil problem is coming from. But God is determined to preserve humanity. That's why when he sends a flood to destroy creation, he preserved a new Adam, a new human. So the way that God is determined to preserve humanity is by raising up new humans, just like he did with Noah after Adam. So then after the flood, the Jewish people still haven't been introduced to the story yet. The same evil problem that's been plaguing humanity is what we see continuing to grow, and there's no Jewish people. And in Genesis 11, this all culminates in a unified human effort to elevate themselves. Genesis 11 is the biblical perspective on Babylon's origin story. As you read Genesis 11, in your English translation, you'll read the word Babel. But it's the Hebrew word Babel, which means Babylon. Now, Babel is the same word that is translated as Babylon in the rest of the Hebrew Bible. Everywhere else you see Babel in Hebrew, it's translated as Babylon. But there's a reason that the translators translated here as Babel instead of Babylon. Um, but it has nothing to do with the fact that it's, it, it wouldn't be Babylon. It is Babylon, and the translators aren't trying to mislead you there. The reason they translated it as Babel here has more to do with wordplay that's going on. Um, there is a wordplay in the Hebrew that does load some extra meaning into the passage. So I'll just, I'll just explain what that is so that you know why it's not called Babylon here. So in the English, you'd read in Genesis 11:9, Therefore, it was named Babel because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth. But there's some Hebrew, Hebrew wordplay going on again, and it's between the name Babylon and the word name and the word languages and the word confusing. So, therefore, it was Shema, named Babel, Babel, because there Yahweh, Balal, confused the Shfat, languages, of all the earth. So, I'll let you hear it in Hebrew. Therefore, it was Shema, Babel, because there Yahweh, Balal, the Shfat, of all the earth. So, there's some wordplay going on here, but that's, that's really not the point. What I want you to understand is that Genesis 11 is the origin story of Babylon, and I just don't want you to be confused if you don't see the word Babylon in your Bible. In the original language, the authors were drawing attention to the fact that this is Babylon, not uh, not trying to, to mislead you. Um, and I'm not trying to say that the, the translators are misleading you either, but if you didn't know all that, you might not know that you're looking at Babylon's origin story. Just to make you feel a little bit more comfortable with this, um, at the beginning of the passage, it even tells you that this is going on in the plain of Shinar, which is the location of Babylon. So I just want you to feel comfortable that this this is Babylon. That's what's going on here, the origin of Babylon. And it makes sense because Babylon is a major player in the rest of the Hebrew Bible. So the fact that his origin story is a culminating moment in human evil 
makes perfect sense from the biblical perspective. So what's happening here is humanity unifies in an effort to build a city for themselves. So humankind unifies to build a city, Babylon, to make a name for themselves and to reach the heavens with a tower. They said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let's make a name for ourselves. It's all about them unifying for the wrong reasons, elevating themselves to the position of God. So here we are. Do you, do you see what's happening? Are you following? In Genesis 3, humanity, with spearheaded by the person named human, elevates themselves to the position of God by disobeying God, listening to a serpent. Now here in Genesis 11, humanity has unified in an effort to elevate themselves to the position of God. It's it's this cosmic fall moment where, where human evil is not only deeply corrupting the human heart, but it's expressing itself in a human-wide effort to supplant God. So actually what's going on here, in, in the Hebrew, the word translated as top of the tower would stand out. It, it stands out because it's the Hebrew word rosh, which means head. So all through this passage in Genesis 11, humanity is unifying themselves. And the word one is the dominating theme of the passage. So it's all about unification. They are one people with one language and one speech. And then there's this tower that they're building. This unified humankind is building. So that they aren't, the reason they're building the tower is so they aren't spread across the earth. And this tower has its head in the heavens. I think what we're supposed to read is that we're supposed to imagine that humanity has unified into one giant human with its head in the sky. And then later in the in Babylon's history, that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar does see. In Daniel chapter 2, Babylon's king, Nebuchadnezzar, dreams about a giant human statue of himself with its head in the sky. So the Jewish people are finally introduced to the story after Babylon's unified human rebellion against God. But it's after so much has already been established in the story. Genesis 1 through 11 has so much for us to learn from and meditate on. If we let the beginning of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis 1 through 11, shape our understanding of what scripture is about, we get a rich picture of God's commitment to fight against sin and save creation, but restore humanity at the same time. And we learn that even though God created us in his image and in his likeness, we were deceived into thinking he was holding out on us. So we tried to be like him on our own terms. But God lovingly works with humanity to restore us, even though we repeatedly rebel against him throughout all the generations. God, our creator, is committed to our restoration. Let's meditate on that. Genesis 8, 15 through 21. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your son and your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh 
and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma, and Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Let's take some time to meditate on how Scripture opens by teaching us about God's dedication to rid creation of sin while preserving and even restoring humans. I'm going to ask some questions. Go ahead and pause if you need more time to think about them. First question. What is one specific desire or longing in your life that hasn't been satisfied yet? Take a moment to express that desire to God and ask Him if it's good. Second question, have you ever been tempted to try and take or secure that desire on your own terms, even if it was at someone else's expense or meant disobeying God? Take a moment to confess that to him if you have. And lastly, remember that God has good plans for you and he wants to give you what you need and use you to bless others. Pause right now and tell God that you will trust him and wait for his provision. Pray with me. God, you are the blessed one, the creator and king of the universe. It's not a small gift that you made us in your image and your likeness to rule over your creation. But we often forget that that's who we are. And we feel this longing to be seen or known or valued because we forget that you see, you know, and you value us for who you made us to be. And we do all sorts of things to make a name for ourselves and to secure those things that we want for ourselves even when it hurts others or goes against how you teach us to live. I'm sorry for the ways that I've done that. Forgive me. Help us to remember that you see us, that you know each of us deeply, and that you love us so much, you even gave your son Jesus so we would have life with you. Thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Torah Guide Podcast. If you want to meditate on this lesson some more, Check out the video and reading plan that go along with it at thetorahguide.com. The Torah Guide is a totally crowdfunded nonprofit that makes all sorts of resources to help you read the Hebrew Bible and discover Jesus, including this podcast, animated videos, devotionals, reading plans, and more. And we're able to do all of it because of generous people like you. If you want to be a part of helping people discover how the Hebrew Bible points to Jesus, you can make a one-time gift or become a monthly supporter at thetorahguide.com. Thanks for being a part of this.